0: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a terrific Thursday morning show for you today, including at the bottom of the hour. We're going to talk about your tropical vacay getaway. Now, I think most people out there during this pandemic probably thinking it will be a long, long time before you go on vacation again outside of Canada. But some of those vacation destinations popular with Canadians pleading with us to come back. Now, the beautiful state of Hawaii, you may have heard about this. They are lifting travel restrictions on Canadians, so you'd be able to travel to Hawaii again without a quarantine, although you'd have to quarantine when you come back to Canada. Now, other countries opening up again, too. Aruba, Bermuda, Jamaica. Oh, I want to take you. I think that's a song, I think. A lot of them saying to the Canadians, come on back, come on vacation. I want you to think about that for me and get set to call me. That's at the bottom of the hour as we talk about that topic, because I'd love to hear what people think about that. Like, would you be willing to do a vacay outside of Canada right now? Would you go to Hawaii? Would you be willing to go to Bermuda? Get set to call me on that. That's at the bottom of the hour. Also, a little later on the show, this is going to be great. We're going to talk about the U.S. presidential election and the potential impact of Americans living outside of U.S. borders and especially right here in Canada. Do you know there are 600,000 Americans who live north of the border in Canada? A lot of them are Democrats. They're very organized and they are getting ready to take down Donald Trump, including right here in British Columbia. I'm going to speak to a member of Democrats Abroad right here in BC. A lot of Americans in British Columbia. Uh, active in u.s. politics and that's going to be very interesting that's coming up later on the show there's a news conference coming up uh, at 9:30 as well by premier john horgan we're rolling on that for you we'll bring you highlights of it lots more on the show today but first uh, let's kick it off closer to home here and talk about the great city of surrey and the goings on there especially with the uh, local police force my guest is anita Huberman. she is the ceo of the surrey board of trade anita it's nice to have you back on good morning Good morning to you. So the Surrey Police Board getting set to hold its first meeting. Is that happening today?
1: It's happening this morning at uh, 10 a.m. They're having their inaugural meeting virtually and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll be watching it closely.
0: Okay. Are you a member of the police board or no? I am not a member of the police board. Okay. Let's talk about what you would like to see that police board do, though. Uh, you've got, I know the Surrey Board of Trade has been very outspoken about the transition to local police force and away from the RCMP. And I know you guys got questions. You got priorities. What would you like to see addressed here at this first meeting of the Surrey Police Board?
1: Well, the police board, they have a long journey ahead of them, and they have to answer some integral questions around economics and governance. And so uh, there's 11 questions that we pose to them. And uh, really, how will public safety be maintained with the new police force? Um, What is the real cost of the transition, including capital and operating needs? Uh, The use of public funds, including those taxes that businesses pay? Uh, What kind of services will be compromised uh, in terms of livability in our city to ensure that a new police force is in our city? And will it really bolster safety uh, for our city, for our region? Uh, It is going to impact public safety uh, nationally as well. What's the real timeline for the transition plan? Uh, what is the role of the surrey police board what is their accountability in terms of communication not only to the business community but also to residents
0: okay that's a lot of questions i hope they i hope they're taking notes and ready to answer those questions i think those are all those are crucial questions to ask for sure let me ask you a little a little deeper on some of those the cost for example Uh, do we ever get a final price tag on this thing how much is it going to cost
1: We never really did, and uh, right now, the police board, they have a fiduciary duty uh, to ensure that uh, they have the money and the sustainable funds to ensure that the new police force uh, is going to, you know, have the IT, the recruitment, the infrastructure, um, all of the, uh, the HR decisions that need to be made. So we really do not have a clear financial picture, Mike.
0: Okay, you mentioned um, the potential for this new police force to compromise local safety. Like, I thought this was all about making Surrey a safer city, not less safe. What are your concerns yeah, my- there?
1: Well, Mike, there's no evidence that a new police force is going to enhance public safety for our city. I mean, we are going to be the largest city in British Columbia, and certainly the city of Surrey has every right to, uh, change their police force, but there's been no evidence about it enhancing public safety. Uh, so, uh, the, the police board also needs to ask that and, uh, and ensure that those that are policing Surrey uh, are going to in fact be better than the Surrey RCMP and the Public Safety Minister himself needs to ensure that um, all of the measures all of the accountabilities are in place uh, before the transition even takes place.
0: Okay speaking to Anita Huberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade you, you also raised the question about international safety what is your point there?
1: Well, it's about uh, cyber security. We are uh, a trading uh, city. We're a trading nation. And uh, the RCMP is the largest force uh, within, uh, na- uh, within Canada. And so if you are, if you do have global crime type of cases, how will a local police force work? Uh, with uh, a national public safety force in order to get down to a solution, in order to protect uh, businesses or residents, uh, cybersecurity, especially in light of the pandemic, everyone is working from home. Uh, you know, how are those cases going to be dealt with?
0: Okay, let me ask you about another topic which I think is of keen interest to people in the city of Surrey and it's one that you have raised as well and that's about the uh, status of the the city's community centres, skating rinks, swimming pools, libraries. Where are we at with that? Are are most of those still shut down?
1: They are still shut down. There's one uh, that is uh, open or proceeding to be open but for a population of our size, uh, 580,000 uh, one recreation center is not enough. We've asked for a staggered, communicated uh, reopening plan uh, to ensure that our youth have things to do, for example. Uh, it's about uh, preserving our mental health uh, for our workforce, for our families. And uh, so we did call on the City of Surrey to have a reopening plan for the recreation centers, the libraries. It's all about economic yeah. development. It's about livability, Mike.
0: Yeah, no, I think, and Surrey, I think, has been slow to get some of these facilities open. Let me let me play a clip here for you from uh, Paul Farrow. This guy is the president of the QP Union in British Columbia that represents a lot of the employees in these municipal facilities. And, Tim, just the second clip on your rundown there, here, here he is, uh, Paul Farrow, um, talking about why he thinks a lot of these facilities are still closed.
2: Uh, the reason why facilities are not open across B.C., is not due to COVID, in my opinion. It is due to financial dollars and the will of those local mayors and councillors to open up those facilities. And they're not taking advantage of the tools that the provincial government uh, has used. Uh, I think the provincial government should be putting restrictions when they give money to the local government, that that money should be used to open up libraries and community centres, programs that the public are needing now
0: I wonder if that's the case, that maybe some municipalities have been slow to open, reopen these facilities, not because they're worried about COVID, but because they want to save money. What do you think, Anita?
1: Well, we know that uh, all government budgets at any level have been compromised as a result of the pandemic, but we have said that there is a leadership opportunity to uh, reorganize uh, the city of Surrey budget to ensure that uh, infrastructure projects are a priority, job creation projects are a prior- priority, and things like the public safety transition that don't increase jobs, that don't increase uh, economic growth should be put on ice. Uh, Things can be done, things have been done uh, in other cities, and there is a leadership opportunity
0: to be had. Today is the first meeting of the new Surrey Police Board. Let's check in with Linda Annis now, Surrey City Councillor. Councillor, it's nice to have you back on again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. What are your thoughts on the transition to a new local police force on the day of the first meeting of the new police board in Surrey?
2: Well, I still think that the city and the province is not listening to the residents of Surrey. There's been almost 50,000 people now that have signed a petition saying that they want to keep the RCMP. And there's thousands upon thousands of lawn signs on people's front lawns throughout Surrey, again saying that they want to keep the RCMP. I think the first job that the uh, new police board needs to do is call for a referendum and allow the voices of the residents of Surrey to be heard.
0: Okay, the, I think that ship has sailed, the potential for a referendum. Um, I'm just wondering why, is it, is that even possible now at this point?
2: anything is possible as we know this process has not been transparent um, the residents of Surrey don't know what they're getting for the 129.6 plus million dollars that's being spent on transition alone and that doesn't take into account the additional cost for having a municipal police force all they know is it's going to cost significantly more and they're going to get less police officers and that's not good communication to the residents and that certainly doesn't explain to them why we're making this transition and how it's going to make them feel any safer in the city.
0: Okay, we have the first meeting of the Surrey Police Board today. What do you think should be job one? What ans- what questions do you believe need to be answered today at this meeting, the first meeting of the Surrey Police Board?
2: Well, this meeting today is primarily to swear in the new board members uh, and to give them a quick overview in terms of what's happening. Job one, I think, is to make this an open and transparent process. I think that's absolutely critical. Uh, There's a lot of work for them to do, uh, but job one is uh, getting engaged with the residents and listening to the residents of Surrey.
0: Will Surrey be more safe or less safe? without the RCMP, and with the new municipal police force in place instead?
2: Well, let's just do the math for a second. Uh, right yeah. now, they're talking about having roughly um, 800 uh, municipal police officers. And if you compare that to Vancouver, Vancouver has over 1,400. Surrey is about 85% of the population of Vancouver, and geographically is as big as Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond, and uh, combined. Clearly, um, that is not enough members. Uh, what we should be doing, rather than spending all this money on transition, we should be giving the RCMP members more. Uh, we should probably be staffing up two or three hundred uh, uh, police officers, and that would be significantly less expensive than doing this whole transition. And I think the RCMP and Surrey are doing a fantastic job. They have many, many very innovative programs.
0: Okay. If you want to weigh in on it, pick up the phone and give me a call. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898 star 9898. Toll free on yourself. One of the, uh, the arguments we often hear in favor of a local police force is it would be more responsive and accountable to the people of Surrey. And, uh, I'm sure if Mayor Doug McCallum was here and we asked him to come on today, by the way, but if he was here, uh, I'm sure he would say that the establishment of a local, locally appointed police board is evidence of that, that you've got members of the community who are going to be responsive to the police and responsible for their oversight, and that's a lot better than the RCMP that, who ultimately answered to a commissioner in Ottawa. Uh, Mike,
2: I just would like to weigh in on that because yes. one of the things that a lot of people don't realize that when you have the RCMP serving your city, you can still have a police board. Uh, so that's not anything new we can still have you know residents of surrey uh, and i think everyone that's on the police board should be a resident of surrey um because they represent who we are and um, you know come from different walks of life we can still do that with the rcmp
0: let me ask you about quickly about another question that i touched on with anita Huberman earlier the ceo of the board of trade and that is the the city of surrey's uh skating rinks community centers swimming pools rec centers Libraries, a lot of them still shut. The city seems to have been slow in kind of getting these services back up and running. Of course, there's concern about COVID 19, but do you have concerns about a lot of facilities still being shut down in Surrey?
2: I have huge concerns about the a lot of the facilities not being open because they're k- being kept close because we have a deficit in our budget, and the deficit uh, in our budget we're making it up by not opening these rec centers, these ice arenas, these aquatic centers. What we should be doing is putting a pause on the police transition and using some of that money to get these facilities open. You know, clearly the people in Surrey and all municipalities, for that matter, you know, are struggling right now both financially and. Um, Emotionally and psychologically, we need to make it easy for them. We need to have these facilities open for them. And I would also say that we should be supporting some of our small businesses. You know, many people are, are, you know, at risk of losing their businesses, and we need to be focusing on that and really providing quality service for our residents in Surrey. And I wholeheartedly agree with uh, Anita that, you know, we aren't opening our um, facilities, uh, not because of COVID-19, but because uh, we need to make save up our money. deficit
0: to save money. Yeah, can the can the facility? We just got a minute left, but can the facilities be safely reopened, though, and keep people keep people safe from the virus?
2: Absolutely, there's many yeah. facilities throughout the Lower Mainland that are open now, and Surrey is no different than them. Uh, we do have plans to open some of them gradually, but we need to get on with it. We need to get on with it now.
0: Okay, Councillor, thank you for coming on this morning. My pleasure, Mike, as yeah. always. All right. Wouldn't it be nice to go on vacation again? Of course, we got the beautiful weather here at home now, but a lot of people at this time of year, in a, in addition to enjoying the weather and the summer, are thinking ahead to the fall, the winter, and this is the time people might be thinking about some kind of a vacation getaway. Maybe you want to get out to get down to Mexico. Maybe you want to go to Hawaii, very popular. Now, of course, travel pretty much shut down largely because of the COVID-19 pandemic but check this out Hawaii now saying that Canadians will soon be able to visit Hawaii without having to undergo a mandatory quarantine when you arrive on the Hawaiian Islands they want Canadians to come back. Now, think about that. Would you do it? Would you go on vacation to a place like Hawaii? Let's check in with Claire Newell now. She's a global news travel expert, CKW contributor. She's the travel uh, president of Travel Best Bets. Hi, Claire.
3: Hey there, Mike. Uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, a lot of people are kind of dreaming of a getaway. And uh, I should just state that, of course, it's really important to mention that the government of Canada has that avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada advisory currently in place, which means if you choose to travel outside of Canada, you still have to quarantine for 14 days when you get home. Um, and this news about Hawaii is exciting for a lot of people. I know a lot of people actually have places there. So it was, uh, yeah. you know, welcome news to them. It will be as of September the 1st. But a lot of people are surprised to know that Canadians are welcome in over 50 countries at the moment that have reopened their borders for Canadian tourists, um, places like Mexico, some countries in Europe, the Caribbean, the Middle East, Africa, South America, South Pacific, like literally it's changing every day, but we still have the, you know, quarantine when you come back, but you don't have right. to quarantine when you're going to at least 50 countries right now.
0: Okay, yeah, people might be surprised to learn that. And Mexico, of course, a popular destination for a lot of British Columbians. We did, yes. a, a, we did a Mexico holiday with our family uh, before the dark times down to Puerto Vallarta, and, and we loved it, and we were thinking, like, oh, man, it would be nice to go back again. But I wonder, I mean, when people think about Mexico, people love it, but it's a COVID hotspot, isn't it? I mean, there's been, like, 30,000 deaths in Mexico from COVID.
3: Yeah, it's it's really important no matter where you want to go whether that's Mexico Hawaii the Caribbean it's like some of the islands have done very very well in the Caribbean and it's pretty easy to get to from from Canada the the issue is going to be you know you have to look at what your your hurdles are like of course health and safety protocols need to be in place um, wow. Can you deal with the quarantine on the way back? Like, Do you work for a company that would allow you to go on vacation and then come back and work from home? I know I have um, one of our colleagues that is is doing that. She's going to France to visit someone that she's desperate to see, um, and she'll be working from home when she gets back because she can go there without quarantining. And as of July 22nd, she could actually get insurance. So she was choosing not to actually travel outside of the Canadian borders because un, like since March, you haven't been able to get insurance that would cover you for um, COVID-related illness. So that was really important to her. So you really need to look at you know the location you're going mm-hmm. to and, and you know how how it's going to fare. I know that there's some Canadian snowbirds that we're starting to book for later this year, like November, December, oh, wow. but wow. they're going into gated communities. So they're traveling into the U.S. So a little bit different. You can go into the U.S. without quarantining at the moment, and you don't have right. to have a negative COVID test. But when you're going to Hawaii, they've done a very good job. Um, they were actually the only state to initially mandate a quarantine period for travelers. Right. You do need to show a negative test result from within the last 72 hours. And if you've looked into it, um, it can be expensive to get that because it's not just a free test. You can't just go up to a facility here in B.C. and say, hey, I'm going to travel. If you're going for travel reasons, you actually have to pay for it. So Health Canada has a list of recommended clinics um, on their website, and you can go. And it ranges from $50 up to $350 to get it done. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's not that many places of the 50 countries that are are listed. Um, Hawaii uh, as a state, you have to do it. But places like the UAE, so if you're heading to Dubai, um, Iceland, so places like that, yeah. the majority of them, majority of the countries that are reopening to Canadian tourists do not have that. You
0: okay. Go- I guess if, if someone's thinking, wow, I could go to Hawaii maybe this winter, maybe you'd, you'd have to really love Hawaii, I guess, because you'd have to go through that COVID-19 test and people, everybody has heard about this kind of nasty nasal swab to get this test and doesn't look very pleasant. It's going to be expensive and then you would have to quarantine when you get home right like you'd be you wouldn't yeah. have to quarantine in hawaii but when you get back to canada you have to quarantine for 14 days correct
3: right but you know what yeah. we're seeing not just hawaii but to other destinations that are popular during the say november to april time period you know it's popular to it is popular to go to mexico it is popular to go to hawaii and the caribbean and we're seeing deals that are unbelievable so you know you have to go through these hurdles you've got to make sure that the protocols are in place for your health and safety and you've got to look but um if you are seeing a deal that you really really love because there's some that are like literally 60% off um wow. make sure that the terms and conditions are good so that you know you just pay a, most of them the companies have small deposits so instead of paying say 250 to 400 bucks deposit now it's maybe 130 150 and make sure that you can cancel so without holding the being left holding the bag. If there's a spike or you choose not to go, make sure. Yeah. And they're all being pretty flexible. But if you're willing to take the risk, like me, like yeah. I have something on the books, um, I did it because there was a heck of a deal and I can cancel it. And that's why I did it. Um, but those deals, as soon as the actual... You know, advisory is lifted by the the federal government. Yeah. Those deals will not be there. No way. Okay. They will just not be there.
0: I think it you you raised a, a very important point, and that's about the the federal government advisory, which says what it says. It's there's not a travel ban, but there's what a travel recommendation or an advisory well, it's, against. Um-
3: it's an advisory that yeah. is currently in place to avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. So yeah. um, I'm not endorsing traveling against any advisories by the government. It's your decision to travel, but yeah. you actually can travel, even though the government has this in place. Airlines are still going. You're permitted. You don't have to quarantine in those 50 countries, at least now. Um, there But we still have to face that mandatory 14-day quarantine once we get home.
0: Right. So I guess people, like you said, people will have to weigh all of that in their own minds and consider their own situations. And I guess make their own judgments and decisions about about what they want to do. Like I've been reading right. about some other countries that are encouraging Canadians to visit, like, you know, Aruba, Barbados opening up, Jamaica, St. Lucia. You oh, know? there's
3: 50. Like there's just yeah. so many and they want us to come. Yeah. You know, we've made the list um, to go to. For the, a lot of countries in the EU, you know, they've opened up um, as of July 1st to Canadians. I and mean, yes. each country has their but own not travel to Ameri- restrictions. But not to
0: Americans, though, right? Not to
3: Americans, yeah. only to 14, <laughs> four, uh, citizens of 14 countries, we happen to be on that list. But we yeah. didn't make the UK list. What the heck? They're um, allowing like 56 um, different countries, citizens in, but not Canadians.
0: Oh, interesting. So what if you travel to another EU country, and if if you had a Canadian passport, you would not be able to get into the UK, even like from France or something? Uh,
3: I'm not sure. I'd have to look at that. But right now, you can't travel from Canada to the UK without quarantining for 14 days. And I'm assuming that that doesn't matter where you're coming from as a Canadian citizen.
0: Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because so there's like a patchwork, I guess, of of kind of regulations and, and rules, I suppose. But are you like Claire this your industry is just taking a wall up here with with this pandemic yeah. of course like are are you is the phone starting to ring a little bit more again or what's happening well
3: we did a big pivot because we did we're really promoting so many getaways um BC has had you know the tourism industry has been hit we can't we don't have international travelers we don't have the cruise industry that comes into Vancouver and gets people heading out to you know places into the Okanagan on, on the island and because of that it, the industry here in BC has really suffered Effort, not just tourism all over the world, but here as well. So we've been promoting getaways here. A lot of self-drive tours. Um, so we've actually pivoted, and people want to get away. I mean, it's I'm yeah. a huge advocate of a getaway. Um, it doesn't matter if it's even just across town and just maybe a night's and hotel. A I did a, a safe staycation is what right. I've been calling it. A safecation.
0: <laughs> a safecation. I like it. Yeah. A yeah.
3: Okay. So it's really important, I think, for people's mel- mental health. A lot of people who work for large companies have to book their vacations by the end of the year. They're not getting any carry forward, so they want to do something. So there's some really cool wine tours and there's some great uh, Vancouver Island beaches or um, getaways to the Rockies, but all sorts of things online now that you can do that we have at travelbestbets.com.
0: I wonder if people were thinking, okay, Hawaii has lifted some of these restrictions maybe I'm a retired person or maybe I work from home who knows I'm, I might be willing to do the 14 day quarantine when I get home to Canada if it means I can go to Maui Uh, We've booked
3: people. We've, we have booked people. We've got a lot of people who are planning to go to their, um, vacation homes if they own them on both Oahu and Maui. And WestJet is starting up on September 5th, Air Canada is starting up flights on September 8th, just as the, um, you know, as Hawaii lifts this restriction to Canadians, um, So yeah, there, there are definitely people who want to get there, especially if they have the ability to, um, socially distance when they arrive there into a gated community or their own property.
0: Sure. Yeah. It might be, it might be a different calculus in people's minds if they're going to a crowded resort or something that might, then it might not be as, as, as attractive, but
3: well, nothing's going to be too crowded because of the, um, capacity issues at almost every resort and hotel all around the world.
0: Yeah. They brought in COVID restrictions.
3: Yes, that's right.
0: right. Yeah. Let me ask you this real quick. Um, We've heard about some tourists being hassled, harassed, targeted. like I, I heard you know people in Hawaii were, were not pleased to see tourists on the islands. If, if people did, like if people did listen to the Hawaiian officials here and say, "Oh, you know, the, the red carpet is out again. I can go to Hawaii. Are, are people going to be welcomed with open arms there, or are there still going to be some kind of hesitancy from the locals?
3: Well, there might be some hesitancy from the locals. We've yeah. seen that in certain places. However, the actual industry, that like the hotels and resorts and the airlines and everyone, they will be opening travelers with uh, you know big open arms. Um, they're all desperate for for the revenue. I know that here we you know, we were seeing people coming in saying that they're going up to alaska and and they've faced some negative response from locals, right. but the actual tourist um, destinations and properties are are just so desperate and so grateful to have the, the, the tourist dollars, that's for sure.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show. I'm very pleased to address a topic now that I've been hearing a lot about from our listeners through tweets, emails, and messages that I receive, and that is the COVID-19 pandemic and how it affects Canadians with disabilities. And let's talk about that now because there are a lot of disabled Canadians out there who feel like they've been forgotten during this pandemic. They feel like they need more help. The government has promised more help. It's been slow in coming, in my opinion. And uh, I think uh, disabled Canadians deserve more, I got a great guest for you, Michael Prince. He's a professor at the University of Victoria. He is also a member of the federal government's COVID nineteen disability advisory group, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, it's nice to talk to you again. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, tell me about the um, the disability advisory group that you're a member of. What do, you, what do you guys What do you guys do there?
4: Well, it was set up in April by the federal minister Carla Qualtro, who's the minister responsible for disability and inclusion, among other. Job responsibilities, and she wanted to make sure that during the COVID crisis, uh, the voices and lived experiences of Canadians with disabilities, Mike, were taken into account. As you know, in March and April, there was a lot of uh, high anxiety, panic of what the pandemic was going to mean, how to respond to it. The Government of Canada's first responses, of course, were really to slow down the economy. A lot of people were thrown out of work, and so. There was a lot of that attention initially on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the wage right. subsidies, focusing on people who are already in the labour force. And as you well know, a lot of Canadians with disabilities are not in the labour force or have very peripheral attachments to uh, workplaces. So there was, right from the get-go, a concern of uh, being overlooked. There was also the concern around hospital visitation policies, triage and in, in healthcare facilities as to how Canadians with disabilities were going to be treated, how how are they going to get access, fair access, equal access to personal protective equipment and uh, access to health care in the hospital system as they presented as people with complex underlying conditions in the first place. So that was the initial concerns, and then we turned our attention to issues around financial support. And as you said at the outset, um, uh, that was a long time in coming. It wasn't until uh, late July that Parliament finally passed uh, legislation to provide a one-time payment for some Canadians with disabilities uh, of $600 that'll come out uh, later this fall.
0: Yeah, $600. Okay, like, I, I think there are a lot of disabled Canadians out there who have feel like they've fallen through the cracks during this COVID-19 pandemic, especially when they saw the very rapid response from the government to help people who had lost their jobs because of the Mm COVID-19 situation. And, for example, the CERB benefit, $2,000 a month, that went out the door very, very quickly. An important program, for sure, that helped a lot of people. But... You had a lot of disabled Canadians who were also impacted by the pandemic, not eligible for that, and they were getting, like, what, half of that with their disability assistance?
4: Well, at, at most. And that, that's been one of the, the disappointing things in this. On the one side, there's, you know, there's a, a good news story in a way, Mike, in terms of federal-provincial cooperation on on a lot of the issues on the health side. Um, and we've even seen people like Premier Doug Ford complimenting uh, Liberal uh, Deputy Prime Minister and other Liberal uh, cabinet ministers in Ottawa, something that we weren't expecting to see. So there's been some good collaboration and cooperation between federal and provincial governments on a lot of the health care and pandemic side. On this side, though, it's been very disappointing in terms of uh, providing much-needed income support, financial security to Canadians with disabilities. Very few provinces uh, have actually... Stepped up with any kind of additional support that's related to the uh, extraordinary costs during the crisis, and you know BC stands out quite frankly, Mike, in terms of uh, $300 additional per month for people on income assistance and disability assistance. Initially, that was for three months. It's been added for an additional two months. That's the the, the most significant response by any provincial government across the country. Um, yeah. you know, Alberta, no, no real response. Saskatchewan, nothing. Manitoba did a one-time. payment, uh, Ontario, $100 emergency relief payment, um, Nova Scotia, one-time $50 payment, but most other provinces, nothing. So for people who are with disabilities already living on pretty meager income assistance or disability supports in their provinces, um, most jurisdictions have done no additional support financially for these individuals or families, so very discouraging.
0: Yeah, yeah i really feel for people who, who are in this situation who are, are asking for help and in some cases they've been promised help and they're still waiting like if you take a look at the federal uh one-time payment of six hundred dollars which was promised some time ago when that that money's still not out the door right people are still waiting for that 600 bucks
4: yeah and and yeah. One, one of the complications of that excuse me one of the complications of that mike is that uh it's going out through several programs so some of it's going out to people who are veterans, who are eligible for uh, the Veterans Disability Income Supports or Disability Awards. Some of it's going out through the Disability Tax Credit, which is through the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, that'll probably start flowing out sometime, um, probably September or October. Some of these benefits are, are, so they're through a mishmash of different programs, different data systems, different definitions. Uh, some use the social insurance numbers, some don't. Um, It it just shows that unlike programs for seniors in Canada, where we have the old age security program, which again, we were able to roll out very quickly uh, extra money for seniors on the OAS or the guaranteed income supplement for the lower income seniors. And also for Canadian families with children under the age of 18, the Canada Child Benefit. Again, we have a national federal income program where uh, monies were rolled out very quickly this spring. We don't have an equivalent National Income Program for Canadians with Disabilities, and I think that's one of the takeaways uh, that I have, and I think a lot of uh, people with disabilities and their advocacy groups and other service groups and clubs that work with uh, Canadians with disabilities is it's time to, one of the takeaways from this pandemic is it's time to to fill that hole in our social safety net for Canadians with disabilities.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the, one of the traditional measures of the, the compassion of any society is how, how we help people who are, are less fortunate. And for, for people who are Canadians with the disabilities, it's like people have been dealt a a bad hand in their lives and through no fault of their own and, and they need help. And I, I think in many cases, they've been forgotten. And and I'm grateful that there's people that have passion to help them like yourself, and that we're on a, an advisory task force like this. Like when we when we talk about Canadians with disabilities, I think that it's a group of people that is much larger than maybe a lot of can a lot of people think. Like how many how many Canadians, for example, are eligible for disability uh, assistance in the country?
4: Uh, well, just to back up just a bit. Uh, yep. And the last good national survey we have, Mike, was back in 2017, so not too old. And Canadians were asked after a census. Uh, if they identified as having a disability in terms of any condition or health circumstances that limited them in their everyday living activities. And get this, 6.2 million Canadians over the age of 15 identified as having either a mild or moderate, or some would identify as a more severe or very severe set of impairments or conditions. That's uh, 22% of the adult population. So basically one in five. Uh, Canadians identified as having some kind of health condition uh, that that either sensory, cognitive, mental, physical, that impacted their abilities to uh, uh, participate in everyday life. So that's a huge number. Now, there's no program for that group alone. Uh, So you're right. uh, The single largest income support program for Canadians with disabilities happens to be the provincial or territorial government's welfare or social assistance programs. So there's probably a little over 1.5 million people on those. Uh, they were never really intended to be on that kind of a program, it, to be honest. Uh, we have workers' compensation programs, of course, if you happen to get injured at work and you are eligible as a worker. We have the um, we have at the federal level, we have a program for post-secondary students with permanent disabilities. If you happen to be at university, we've got... Uh, the disability tax credit goes out to about 1.2 million Canadians. Veterans uh, injured as a result of uh, service in the Canadian forces. Uh, we've got uh, a couple hundred thousand there. So it's a patchwork of programs, Mike. There's about 10 different programs, taxes, and income support. So that's part of the reason that often people get overlooked. There isn't yeah. a single visible story here or a program like old age security or the child benefit that... Is a national program that people can understand, oh, that's the group, that's their program, what are they getting, how can we help? And so it's a, it's a motley collection of uh, programs across the country, across both levels of government.